You're listening to the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 10, with Marina Kifferstein. Everything exists and lots of things are cool. The only rules are there are no rules. <laughs> I'm Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Talk. And I'm Madison Greenstone, clarinetist of Talk. And today, today we're interviewing we're... Marina Kifferstein. Marina Kifferstein. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, Marina. <laughs> Marina Kifferstein is a violinist, composer, and a founding member of Talk Ensemble and the Rhythm Method String Quartet. She also performs regularly with a bunch of other new music ensembles like Talia, Wet Ink, and the International Contemporary Ensemble, and is a co-administrator of the Open Improvisations Concert Series. As a composer, she works in close collaboration with performers, and her work has been performed across the U.S. and Europe. She is on faculty at the United Nations International School and the Composers Conference Summer Festival. Marina is currently a DMA candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center. She holds an MM in Contemporary Performance from Manhattan School of Music and a Bachelor's of Music in Violin from Oberlin Conservatory and a BA in English from Oberlin College. And we're talking over Zoom because in case you're listening to this far in the future, we are in the corona era currently. So, Marina, in all of talk, you and Laura and David have known each other the longest. You all went to Oberlin at the same time. Would you describe your experience at Oberlin briefly? It sounds like it was a really magical place. Yeah. It's funny because usually people tell me to stop talking about Oberlin. So this <laughs> feels really great that I'm like being asked to talk about Oberlin. Um, yeah, I had a wonderful time there. I was really lucky to be in both the conservatory and the college. When I finished high school, I, I didn't actually really know what it meant to be a professional violinist. I just knew that I wanted to keep playing. So when I got to Oberlin, I started the dual degree program and around my sophomore year, I ended up deciding that I wanted to be a professional musician or at least give it a shot. And that's kind of the track that I went down, but but I'm really happy that I did the BA and I got to read a lot of books that I probably wouldn't have otherwise read and took some fun classes while also stressing out about practicing like every other conservatory student. Do you think by the time you chose to focus on music, you understood what it meant to be a professional musician? To be honest, I'm not sure that I understand what that means even now, like maybe especially now. Right. (laughs) But of course, I've been a professional musician now for like eight years or so, and I understand what it means for me, but I don't think I got that when I was 19. I mean, I I knew that I wanted to do new music pretty early on after making that decision. Um, That was what was really energizing for me. It was something that I felt like was challenging. And it was an area that I felt like I had something to say that hadn't already necessarily been said. I think there's plenty more to be said about classical music, for sure. But yeah, I really, I love playing new work. And I, and I, I knew that I wanted to do that when I decided I wanted to be a violinist in college. But I... I didn't really know practically what it would look like. Do you think there was like a turning point that you could point towards? Maybe like an aha moment or it was like a piece or like a particular kind of experience around performing where it's just sort of like clicked? Or was it more just like a gradual condensation of experience and, you know, in practice where it morphed into you realizing that you want to 
you wanted to be a professional musician? Okay, so my teacher was on sabbatical and I, I remember that when we first started working together, it was a difficult thing for me because I had been used to being kind of like a, a big fish in a little pond. Even though I grew up in New York, I went to a really small community music school. I didn't go to one of the pre-colleges and I didn't go to an art specialized school. So I was always like that girl who was really good at violin. And then I got to Oberlin and I was like, not anymore. <laughs> um, like when I started at Oberlin, you know, people in my studio were doing major international competitions and, you know, competing at like the highest level and they sounded amazing. And, and I listened to old recordings and I'm like, oh yeah, I sounded pretty good, but they sounded really, really good. So when my teacher went on sabbatical, one of his students came to replace him and he was really nice. And my teacher had been really mean to me. I actually, so my teacher was Milan Vitek and like, he's one of the people that I love the most in the world. I had an amazing experience studying with him. But that first year was super strained because I just didn't understand the expectation and I didn't know how to get there. And it was just really frustrating. And I would cry after like a bunch of lessons. But then he had this other teacher come in who was really encouraging. And I think that was really good for me. <laughs> and then when he came back, I made this decision. I came to this realization that I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to just project really positive energy at him and I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to prove to him that I can be really, that I can do a good job. And then our relationship got a lot better because I was nice to him and I practiced, <laughs> which was like a really good life lesson to learn, I suppose. It's kind of shocking that I didn't know that intuitively before, but yeah, that, so that, that happened. And then I also, in my sophomore year, I played quartet for the end of time and I worked on it for like a whole semester or maybe a year I don't remember with this group and it was a really fun group like I loved the people in my ensemble and we got to work with Tim Weiss as our coach and he was the head of contemporary music at Oberlin he ran the contemporary music ensemble there CME and I started playing with CME right after that like my second semester sophomore year and I played with them every semester after that until I graduated even through my fifth year because the dual degree program is five years. So yeah, I think it was just like a, it was a mixture of wanting to prove that I could, that I could do it and feeling like it was actually possible that I could do it because of various encouraging forces around me, probably. So how is it that you and Laura ended up in the same master's program, the same small, very specialized master's program, and like hadn't really been friends before that, even though you were at Oberlin at the same time? Yeah, I mean, Laura and I talk about this all the time. I think we both had ideas of who each other were based on like the circles that we ran in when we were there. I'm sure everything is different now. There were kind of two camps of contemporary music and I was in one of them and she was in the other one. Describe the two camps. One of them was more focused around the contemporary music ensemble, which that was my camp more. And the other camp was more focused on, around the collaborations with the composition department. Mm. And I just, I definitely played works by student composers and I had friends who were composers, but I wasn't as, for whatever reason, I wasn't as involved in that scene. There was, yeah, I mean, there was definitely overlap, but social groups are mysterious and complex. But do you think like, did you guys bring those slightly different strengths and different 
sort of interests into talk in a way like is that one of the things that makes the group strong is that we have both an interest in just being really rigorously strong instrumentalists and also like open-minded and really interested in collaboration on like a deep level with composers yeah for sure and i think that laura was like every bit if not more rigorous about being a good performer as yeah. I was. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily like brought that side of the equation and she brought the composer collaboration, but I would say that I learned a lot about collaborating with composers and I learned a lot about how to decide who you even want to work with from Laura and from other people in talk and everybody's various approaches to it. When when was the moment when you and Laura, and I guess also you, Charlotte, when you guys met and like things started to take formation. So Laura and David uh, were friends from Oberlin and David was at Columbia and Laura was at MSM and they were just talking and they were like, oh, we should do a project. We live, we're like right next door to each other. We should do like a Columbia composers writing for people who are in the MSM program. But Maybe not everybody has to be like in the program right now either. Um, I think Laura just like put together a group of people who she thought would be cool to work with, but also like an instrumentation that worked for that first concert. There was no piano in the space, so that was limiting. <laughs> so that's kind of, we kind of ended up with this weird mix of people. Originally, when Laura asked if I wanted to do this concert, I was like, I don't know, I'm really busy. Spring is really hard this year. I was like so busy, but I was like, yeah, this sounds really cool. And Laura was basically like, Marina, make time for this. This is going to be really cool. And it might be a thing that lasts. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. So yeah, she was just like, you should be the person who plays this concert. So please play this concert. And then I did it. And I'm really happy that I didn't back out of that concert because Tuck has been like one of the best things in my life <laughs> for the last, we're coming up on eight years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This was the project of the seven year. So yeah, that was, that was how that started. But yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why Laura and I weren't friends or weren't close at Oberlin, but we were different when we started at Oberlin than we were when we became friends and who knows if we would have like clicked in the same way. Those kinds of dynamics over time are interesting. Or how like the differences start to like make sense with each other. It's like being mutually compatible. Yeah. Or yeah. I mean, I think Laura has been an overwhelmingly positive force in my life influence. Like she's been an overwhelmingly positive influence in my life. In what ways? Her work ethic is just astounding and I'm inspired by that. And she really lives her life according to the way that she thinks she should live her life. Like she has a high standard for herself and for the way that, like for the world that she wants to see. I feel like she, more than I tend to, or maybe I've, I've been trying to do more of this, she, she is the change that she wants to see in the world. And I think the work that we do in talk is a reflection of that kind of mentality on all of our parts. But I think I feel very inspired by everyone to just like be a better version of myself. <laughs> I know that 
when I first joined, I was like, oh my God, like this is so inspiring. Like I'm learning so much and like growing in so many different kind of inexplicable ways and like seeing everyone together. It's like, oh, like there is this group sound because everyone has like grown together over the course of the past seven and a half years and has that history of like mutually in inspiring all the other members in the group. So it becomes this register, you know, of group inspiration and group growth and like mutual learning of each other's skills and predilections and yeah how people push each other yeah yeah i would agree with that it's really beautiful and shout out also to liam and carlos who were so influential in the way that the group has developed and everybody past and present talk has made like a really wonderful contribution to the group dynamic, I think. Totally. Yeah. Do you have any favorite memories from Talk Project's past that you want to talk about? Ah, so many memories. <laughs> I think that our trip to Greece was a, a highlight for me in a lot of ways. And it was like a really, it was a really stressed time. At, like at, there were times when we were really stressed, but that was really a wonderful trip overall, I think. I mean, just to get to work with some really good composers in a really beautiful place. And what else? I like a lot of our touring. I loved our Canadian tour that we did over Thanksgiving one year. Um, American Thanksgiving. <laughs> Sorry, Charlotte. <laughs> um, <laughs> in New York, the concert that we did at Qubit where we played Love, Crystal and Stone by Ashkan Bazadi. I feel like we can still play that like that was the that was the premiere of that full cycle and we can still like live in that piece a bit more but I thought that was like a really beautiful evening in recent memory somewhat recent what about like early memory you know like when talk was just starting to like form as a thing early memories that really stick out as being like formative that first concert our first concert was really special because I you know, we rehearsed really hard for it and it was all these new pieces. And that was my first professional concert, even though I think we paid ourselves like 25 bucks a piece or something from the door where it was all new commissions by people who I consider to be colleagues. Like these composers that we were working with, it felt like a much closer collaborative relationship was forming there. Just the idea that they were writing for us and they were around our age. Most of the new music that I was playing before talk was stuff by more established composers or student works with people that I like didn't necessarily feel a strong connection to. It was like I was assigned to work with them for school. It didn't really feel this like the same level of professionalism or collaboration. And it that was a really beautiful concert. And and you know, we finished the concert and everybody just felt so good about it. We were like, we should do this more. <laughs> And I mean, some of the pieces from that concert we still program, like Series and Posture was written for that piece by David Bird, Romance de la Luna by Ashkan. I remember, was Ecstatic Music written for that concert? So Ecstatic Music was on that concert, the Taylor Brook piece for violin and percussion, and but it wasn't actually written for us, it, um, but we kind of took, took it over. <laughs> we stole it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I remember being so impressed by how you guys played that piece. It's such an awesome piece and you just like slayed it. Well, it's so funny because like we've played it so many times since then. And I listened to some of the earlier performances we did of it. And I'm like, oh, that's not tight. Or like, I didn't realize that that was supposed to align like that. And I really feel like Ellery and I have grown with that piece so much. We haven't played that in a, it's probably been like a year and a half or something. We should, we should program it again. It's been too long. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I memorized it at one point. Um, I really got deep in that piece. I guess the guitars make it hard to tour with. But Yeah, there are two guitars. We should be able to find two guitars that Ellery can beat with sticks. (laughs) Yeah, every music department should have that. Yeah. Um, that, That was a really good piece. And the whole concert was like, just really beautiful. And inspiring to work with everybody and and I the thing is the reason I didn't want to mention that right away is because it's not like the first concert was the high point of working with talk like it has gone the general trajectory has been up do you think there's like a piece or a project or a particular concert that has like stretched you as a musician the most and made you like really grow in some ways or stretched talk as an ensemble what do you think I mean, there are pieces that have stretched us in different ways. Like, I think that the stuff we've done with theater companies has been really positive just for, like, expanding the kinds of collaborative experiences that we've had. You know, we played Taylor's Taylor's piece, Power of Emotion, or The Apartment, or, like, different versions of the same piece with this theater company. I think that was cool. That helped talk grow. There's a Lewis Nielsen piece that we have done that we have not actually like properly recorded Superflumina Babylonis was really good for us musically. Like I think it stretched us all. I would put Ashkan's Love Crystal and Stone in the same vein of like just super difficult and just like virtuosic ensemble playing that was also really virtuosic individual writing. I mean definitely Mouthpiece 28, the Aaron Gee piece has been like yeah hugely beneficial to our ensemble playing. I mean, that piece is just like so intricately constructed. I mean, the ensemble playing in that is is really virtuosic and um, just rehearsing that piece for years was really good. <laughs> it was interesting. Just recently, we did John Rott's piece, Merely to Open Her Mouth, which we played a few years ago. And I remember when we first played it, it seemed completely impossible. And this time it seemed like difficult, but we we could handle it, um, which is cool. I don't know if it, if the piece itself stretched us so much as it was just a nice benchmark to see the ways that we've grown. Yeah, I mean, that piece, that piece is metrically really complex. And there are just like a ton of notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many notes. And they go by very quickly. A lot of them are very fast notes. <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree with you that that piece it was really interesting. I mean, the first time we played it, we rehearsed it so much. And the second time it was for a Columbia Composers concert. And we rehearsed it a lot within the confines of a university residency and like the kind of practical time restrictions that you have for that. I mean, I think that John only told us that we were playing it like a month before and mm-hmm. and Madison was learning it for the first time. <laughs> Poor, poor Madison. 
<laughs> but I mean, it was definitely like so much easier to put together the second time. And part of it was probably because we put in that initial work and it, that type of thing doesn't ever go away. Like I still remember all of the Suzuki songs by memory because I <laughs> drilled them so hard when I was like between the ages of like five and 10 years old. But yeah, that was a nice benchmark. Do you have any tips or any anything you've learned in your many years as a professional performer of very difficult music? Like any techniques for learning lots of difficult music in a relatively short amount of time? Yeah, you know, I do the best when I remember that slow practice is the fastest practice. I think a lot of the time I see like a huge volume of music in front of me and it's all really difficult and I'm like well the best case scenario is that I do a mediocre job at all of this <laughs> if I want to get through all of it then I can only do an okay job so I might as well not do that detail work but I think it's just so much faster to learn things and obviously to learn things properly if you like actually spend the the slow practice time but I think you learn things faster if you practice them slowly and that also plays into a kind of historical conception of technique. Like if you're going slow and like really learning things consistently, that kind of working process like only continues to reinforce itself across all the other projects you do. Yeah. And like builds itself in. So you are hopefully, I mean, this is like the most ideal situation. Like you're never having to unlearn anything that you set out to learn. For sure. And I think the other thing that I have learned is I've gotten better at saying no to things in the past few years. There was a period when I finished my master's and I was just like so eager to get my career off the ground and, and also just like excited about all the cool possibilities that I just said yes to everything. And that's an important time of life to figure out what you like and who you like. And, and I don't regret doing that, but I do think that I do a better job when I am selective about the projects that I take on. I've been really lucky to have projects that I'm excited about that also help me pay rent. <laughs> but but if, if that's a possibility, then that's what I would recommend to, to people who, who are looking to get into this kind of stuff. Say no more. <laughs> Not no more, quote unquote, but like, no. Like, say no more often. <laughs> it's like going slow on a meta level and going slow on a tiny level, too. It's like, slow down your life, yeah. slow down your brain, slow down your practice. <laughs> well, my, my violin teacher now, so I'm studying now with Mark Steinberg, um, who's just an incredible teacher. And one of the things that he says is, like you should never play faster than you can think. If you're playing and you can't actually think fast enough to like track every note and every moment of what you're playing, then you're going too fast. And that's helped me so much just thinking about that. So I think it, it applies on many levels. Yeah, that's cool. Outside of playing contemporary chamber music, what other things do you do that enriches your creative practice, your, your musical practice? That's a nice question. Well, composition and improvisation have probably been the most beneficial aspects of my musicianship outside of performing chamber music in the in the last few years. With my string quartet, with the rhythm method, we write for each other a lot. 
And having a group of musicians who I just respect so much who take the time to like sit down with me and I can just ask them to do weird stuff and they're just game. We just try things out on each other and we're like, that was cool. Okay, cool. I had an idea for a thing. How about we try it? That's been really beneficial. I'll ask them to try something and I'll say, yeah, that's what I want. How should I notate that? Kind of being able to have that conversation with people whose musicianship I really respect. That's been super, super amazing for me. I've also, in the last few years, gotten more into free improvisation. That kind of happened when I moved to Brooklyn, which is like the most Brooklyn thing to say. But <laughs> but it's true that I was interested in that kind of noise improvisation or free sound improvisation scene before I moved to Brooklyn in the abstract. But most of the concerts in New York that I know about that engage with that kind of with that kind of performance are happening in kind of undergroundy Brooklyn spaces. <laughs> it was kind of like as soon as I moved to Brooklyn that I got opened up to that scene and I was just invited in immediately. Yes, yeah, suddenly the free improv is half an hour away and not an hour and a half away. Yeah. It's like makes it much more inviting. Yeah. And I had also recently gone to Berlin for the first time and seen some really cool free improv stuff there. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to try to make this a thing that I do. <laughs> what did you see there? I have a friend, this bass player, Adam Goodwin, who does some very cool noise stuff, improv stuff, animation drawings, and he's just a all-around weird artist. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, and I saw he played something where he was like bowing a birdcage and it was amplified and I was like, I am so in for this, <laughs> like this is what I want in my life. And I think I, I went to some like noise metal, more like metal show and that was really fun. <laughs> I don't know. And then I came back and I moved to Brooklyn and I was like, oh, this exists here too. <laughs> that is cool. I had a conversation with my friends, Carrie Fry and Alec Goldfarb. We were all in a class together at CUNY Graduate Center last fall. And Lainey Pfefferman came to talk to us about the New Music Gathering. This was a class that was run by Jay Eckhart. And Lainey came and talked about the New Music Gathering and just like creating space and creating community. And, and we left that class and we were like, wouldn't it be cool if there was like some kind of jam session for just like open improvisation, just like make it super inclusive and open-ended and like people from a lot of different backgrounds can come and the only rules are there are no <laughs> rules. <laughs> and yeah, so we started that and there was like one event before coronavirus at Freddy's Bar in Brooklyn and it was really awesome. And then coronavirus hit and we realized that we couldn't do any more live events for a long time. And we were like, maybe we should try some kind of an online version of this. And we've been doing it on Facebook Live, just like taking turns live streaming. And some people have figured out really cool ways to collaborate, even with the restrictions of the existing platforms and the existing software. And like, there have been some really cool things that have come out of it. And it's nice because you can have like a live chat going. <laughs> so it's kind of like being at a concert with people because everyone's watching at the same time and people are giving like live banter and it's just been a super supportive awesome community and some really awesome people have have played and I've been really grateful for that. Do you think improvising informs your written composition? Yeah definitely. I mean what I really like about 
music is that you can do anything. Like everything, everything exists and lots of things are cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there are so many ways that you can do cool things. And a lot of the time my compositions will have improvised elements. A lot of the time I'll generate the material by improvising on my own. But then sometimes I want to write things that are not improvisatory. Sometimes I want to write things that are more mechanical or more like more forced, never in a way that would harm musicians' bodies. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's a spectrum of completely improvised to semi-improvised to not improvised at all. And then to like, not even feeling like it might have been improvised. It seems like you're kind of hinting at this really interesting, like, breakdown of roles within what we think of as the new music community. Like, it seems like, like, it's no longer that someone is only like a new music violinist, like they can also be a composer or a coder or like, like Charlotte, like make video games, you know, and there's a wide palette of ways to engage with experimental thinking. And I think that's like a really exciting thing to see. Yeah, I'm just super inspired by a lot of people within the new music community. And like, one of my friends who has been just inspirational to me is Natasha Deals in this regard, particularly just I mean, she's so skilled as a composer. And she's also so knowledgeable about electronics and she's also so skilled as a video artist and of course she's like also a really skilled flutist and other random instruments instrumentalist yeah (laughs) something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is how much fear goes into or how much fear has played a part in my life in not trying to gain mastery in more things and maybe mastery is even the wrong word because that that's where the fear comes in. It's like, oh, well, if I'm not a master of it, then why am I even doing it? So should I even try to start learning how to do this thing when I'm probably never going to get good enough to be a master of it? I think that's something I've been battling recently, or maybe just made more aware of and trying to allow myself to be bad at things so that I can be good at them later. I have been trying to gain more proficiency in more software is like I'm trying to trying to get better at Ableton and I'm trying to get better at I just bought Creative Suite and I'm learning some Adobe stuff and trying to just like be bad at more things so that I can decide what I actually want to put time into to be good at. The thing you say about fear rings really true for me and I also think that a big part of feeling free to experiment with different forms is um when you've given up trying to fit into a structure, then suddenly you realize you need other skills. When you read biographies of the great classical composers, most of them were doing other stuff in addition to composing. They were leading ensembles, performing as soloists, having all these different roles outside of their like one primary role. And I think maybe in the last hundred years or so, society has built up in this way that where there are conservatories and there are symphonies and it seemed for a while like there were very clear categories that musicians could fit in and you had to train for those categories. But when you become passionate about new music and you're like, I want to do something outside of the categories, eventually you're going to hit a point where you're like, I need to do something other than just play the violin. (laughs) It seems to me like it's a really natural way to exist, to have a few different complementary skill sets yeah and in the end 
you know, I do a lot of collaboration with people who are really good at things that I'm not good at. And I justify not learning about those things by telling myself, well, this person who I work with could do it better. So why do I need to learn how to do that when this person wants to work with me and they're offering to do the thing? But I think that's, yeah, that's that fear thing again of just like, I'm going to make a fool out of myself if I try. So here's to making a fool out of myself this year. Yeah, I'm going to try some stuff. Yay. In addition to uh, make a fool of yourself more often, if there was any advice you could give to your past self, like maybe 2013 Marina at the end of her master's degree, what would you say to your past self? Probably just like, relax. (laughs) (laughs) Like so stressed out all the time. But she would say, how am I supposed to relax? And I'd say, all things considered, the stakes are not that high. (laughs) Take care of yourself. (laughs) Take care of your friends. It's going to be okay. Worst case scenario, you don't do a good job in that performance, which we should always try to do a good job in the performance. But usually I do a better job when I'm not so stressed out. Anxiety and stress get in the way of my productivity more than they help. There's a there's a happy medium. You have to like care. Anxiety is kind of just like caring. It's It's like a lot of caring. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like an excess of caring. So does that mean it's also love? I think so. I'm a very anxious person. And I think part of that is just chemical. But definitely I can. It's something that I that I have to work on. And I would also probably tell myself to like, trust myself more, uh, or trust my feelings about things more. I think I tend towards like over rationalizing situations and doing the thing that seems like rationally the best idea, even if my gut is telling me to do something else. And I think I would say, maybe listen to your gut sometimes. (laughs) Nice. So what's a book or a piece of art or film or performance that you've encountered recently that has changed your life a little bit? Okay. Book, The Three-Body Problem by Si Chin Liu. It's a sci-fi book. It's just really beautifully done. Made me think about a lot of stuff. Other piece of art. Recently, I was listening to and watching Excellent, Good, Beautiful, the Pomplamoose piece. This was on Charlotte's Daily Pep Talk playlist a couple weeks ago or something. I listened and I watched that and I was just like, wow, I really need to learn Creative Suite. (laughs) I was like, okay, I need to be able to do video stuff and also just like electronic music stuff and collage. It was just so nice. And that whole Pomplamoose video album, I mean, every track is a banger. It's so good. It's out on talk editions. That that got me moving. I was like having a I was having a down day and, and I went up to my roof and I took my computer and I found a shady spot and I watched it and I came back down and I felt like ready to go. Nice. It is an amazing video. It's amazing. I think what they do in Papa Moose is just so inspiring in general. I I love them. Mm-hmm. Okay, would you rather? Sure. Marina, do you know how to play Would You Rather? 
Oh, Charlotte. I know how to play this game. Okay. Would you rather, if you had to suddenly switch careers, would you rather become a baker or a writer? Probably a baker. Yeah. Hmm. I've been really into um, sourdough recently, past few years, couple years. Oh, man. Just like dough is so good. It's just, it's just so good. You just keep learning and it's just like, there are so many variables and it's so simple and so complex and so delicious. I would love to master that. So if you were a baker, you would, you would specialize in sourdough? You do other kinds of bread? Would you branch out into like pastries? I would probably open a sourdough, a mostly sourdough bakery. Um, and I would do a lot of different kinds of like fancy breads, but also some basic ones. But I would, I would do all kinds of artisanal sourdough products <laughs> and also probably some, yeah, definitely some sourdough baked goods. I might do some non-fermented baking, but I just love the sourdough flavor. I haven't gotten tired of it yet. I've been eating it a lot. Okay. Next question. If you had to switch forms for a year, would you rather be a mushroom or a coral reef? Mm. Or a mushroom network? A mushroom network or a coral reef? They're all um, interconnected. I think I'd be a mushroom network just because if you're a coral reef, then fish nibble at you. I don't think I'd like that. But humans nibble at you if you're a mushroom. No, they, Unless you're poisonous. they kill you and then they eat your corpse. But I think I would prefer that. The humans kill coral reefs too. Sad. That's yeah, true. I, I like coral reefs a okay, lot, but, but I think I'd probably yeah. be. Oh, mm. I could see you. I think I'd probably be a mushroom. Yeah, yeah. like a mushroom network. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. Also, it's like really hard to kill a mushroom network because they're like spores, and you they spread out in these radiuses, and I feel like I would have eternal life. Probably or close yeah. to it. Yeah. Would you rather have violin strings for hair or chin rest permanently stuck to the bottom of your feet? Violin strings for hair. That'd be so cool. <laughs> okay, that was easy. Well, that's the chin rest stuck to my feet. That I couldn't walk. What do you? That's like an obvious one to me. <laughs> I guess I could get special shoes. <laughs> it could be you could slide. I was picturing them like on your heels. And you oh, can, like, on your heels, like a horseshoe. And they would also be secret. So like people, when you're meeting them for the first time, they wouldn't know that you were a mutant. But if you had a, I guess you could wear a hat or something if you had violin strings for hair. Or you could just shave your head. Yeah, that'd be hard though. You need like a metal cutter. Yeah, like wire cutters. Yeah, I mean, I guess if someone judges you for having violin strings for hair, they're probably an asshole anyway, so. And I feel like, yeah. I if I donated choice. my hair to Locks of Love or what, like I could, you know, people donate their hair. I could donate my hair to like people who need strings. I could just like keep growing it out and like save people a lot of money. You could play your own hair on your own body. Yeah. And if I eat like a bunch of iron or something, then it, like if I have an iron heavy diet, then the strings are better quality or something. I don't actually think there's iron in violin strings, but I'm thinking of like what metals we, if you can't eat steel. That's my answer. Okay, great. Okay. Would you rather teach violin to sloths or squirrels? Mm, they'd both be really bad. Um, probably sloths. 
they would go slow like you were and saying also before. like just thinking about the mechanics of a squirrel playing violin like like okay do we have a squirrel sized violin like do we scale the violin down yes the world's smallest that is violin, pretty cute yeah. but i feel like i would have a yeah, hard time you could scale the violin or you could make it a team effort like once a couple squirrels do the bow <laughs> or maybe it's all pizzicato <laughs> It's like Gulliver's One's Travel, on you know, like with the oversized violin, and they're all just like, oh my god. I feel like they'd just scratch up an instrument. It'd be stressful for me. I think the sloth would be, like, mm -hmm. a better student. Mm. Like, the, the squirrel might Maybe have, like, a higher ball. ceiling of how good they can get, but the sloth would, like, be a more fulfilling <laughs> student to teach. Right, and they would never play yeah. faster than they, they could. Well, I don't know how fast they think. Do, you th do they think? Well, yeah, do you think that sloths have like the same speed thought processes as other fast animals, but they just can't physically respond that quickly? Or are they just like really mm. slow to think about things? I don't know. Yeah, no idea. Know. Depends on where like the thoughts take place because like maybe they don't think about things, but they're like sensory motor reaction, you mm -hmm. know, like when there's thread or food or whatever, it's just like, so slow and distended that like that is their thinking in their reaction. How are sloths still like a species? How did they do that? It's incredible. They poop out a third of their body weight whenever they poop. <laughs> wow. How often do they poop? Every like few days, I think. They all just like poop out a third of the full third of their body weight. Wow. It's incredible. They're incredible animals. <laughs> How do they eat like so slowly in order to like accumulate a third of their body weight and poop? I don't know. I heard this. I don't know if it's definitely true, but it sounds like it could be. Would you rather, okay, if you had to pick between two superpowers with caveats, would you rather be able to fly but only when it's raining or be able to understand any language spoken but only when the person who's speaking it is happy? Ooh. I mean, do it. Mm. Could I also speak any language if I'm happy? Like, could I communicate with them? Or can I just understand them? Um, okay, I think you can communicate with them. Then I want that maybe, one. Maybe you speak English, but they understand you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I want that one. Because Okay, well, okay. This is hard because flying in the rain sounds really lovely. <laughs> <laughs> especially if it's just like a light drizzle but I think that the um the language thing like that would just in encourage me to make people happy when I communicate with them and I feel like that's not a bad thing at all yeah I mean that's people thing. I guess it would be difficult like if I actually had a like a I couldn't have relationships with people that were that complex because eventually you're gonna have to talk about the hard things or you're gonna have to have some kind of conflict and then I would just stop being able to understand them that would be really frustrating like I couldn't maybe it would be kind of good though actually maybe it would be a great relationship if like you just didn't have to hear any of their unpleasant thoughts like <laughs> that sounds unhealthy <laughs> or what if what if they're not mutually exclusive like what if you know you can be happy but still have these like really intense and meaningful conversations that you know that quote-unquote go there but like there is the sort of like deep satisfaction or happiness or whatever yeah I guess I guess it depends like 
what we mean by happy. I was really just imagining interactions with strangers. I didn't really think about the possibility that you could actually make a friend with someone this way, but you totally could. Yeah, I mean, I think still a, a very surface. Still, level I would friend. probably choose the languages thing because that would be so amazing. That would be such an amazing gift. But also, so would flying in the rain. That's why it's would you rather? They're tough choices. This is this is a hard one. Next, I think I need the next question. That's it. We're out. That's it. That's the okay. That's change. fine. Oof, that was a hard one to end on. <laughs> cool. Thanks for chatting, guys. See you guys later. This has been episode number ten of the Talk Editions podcast with Marina Kiverstein. The music you heard at the beginning of this episode was Izzard by Marina Kifferstein. What you're hearing now is Marina's String Quartet Number no. 2. Both pieces were recorded by The Rhythm Method. This episode was produced by Marina Kifferstein and Charlotte Mundy and edited by Charlotte Mundy. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please help other people find it by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing it with your friends. See you back here next week.